Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives every month from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. The coronavirus has reached the Middle East, and many are worried their governments will not be able to tackle the spread of the virus due to poor health infrastructure and bad governance. We will be speaking with Ryan Costello of the National Iranian American Council on how Iran's response so far has put Iranians and the people of the region at risk. Then, the Israel elections are taking place for the third time in a year after two deadlock rounds and where no party was able to gain the majority needed to rule. Incumbent Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has campaigned using his Trump-sponsored so-called Deal of the Century, which legitimizes Israeli annexation of Palestinian territories. But the international community is slowly pushing back. And stay tuned as we dive into the legacy of one of Egypt's longest-ruling dictators, Hosni Mubarak, who died this month at the age of 91. Finally, we unpack the case of a young Saudi female rapper arrested by the kingdom's authorities after singing about the holy city of Mecca. Her story reflects the ongoing abuses that outspoken women and dissidents face in Saudi Arabia. Women's rights activists are either in prison, silenced, intimidated, or banned from traveling. COVID-19, the deadly virus which is spread to every continent on the globe except Antarctica. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. COVID-19. Many in the region fear their governments are not ready to deal with the outbreak of the COVID-19, commonly known as coronavirus, which has caused almost 3,000 deaths worldwide and is on the verge of becoming a global pandemic. Countries like Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan have already suffered catastrophic blows to their health infrastructures due to decades of international sanctions and conflict. We asked Dr. Dalia Samuri, a manager at the World Health Organization office for the Eastern Mediterranean region, what those countries can do to prevent the virus from spreading further. As you know, our region is one that is plagued by emergencies. Almost two-thirds of the region's 22 countries are currently directly or indirectly facing complex emergencies. Weak health systems further increase the vulnerabilities of population and the risk of disease spread. The resulted fragile health systems may not have the capacity to early detect and rapidly respond to potential COVID cases. Country planning and mobilization of resources, including human resources, are critically needed to support these countries. There are three priorities that we are focusing on. One, all countries must prioritize protecting healthcare workers. Uh, Two, communities must be engaged to protect people who are most at risk of severe diseases, particularly the elderly and people with underlying health conditions. And third, countries that are the most vulnerable must be protected by doing their utmost to contain outbreak uh, in, in these countries with the capacity to do so. Other Middle Eastern states, such as Lebanon, Tunisia and Egypt, have a record of bad governance which presents challenges in the event of a sustained outbreak. And the rich Gulf countries, many of which are global aviation hubs or host major annual events such as the pilgrimage to Mecca and the World Expo in 2020, could become clusters for further contamination. 
Already, Saudi Arabia has cancelled visas for the minor pilgrimage known as Umrah. The UAE has cancelled an international cycling tournament after two Italian participants tested positive for the virus. And most Gulf countries have stopped flights to Iran, the epicenter of the outbreak in the region. Iran's government has announced a spike in the number of coronavirus cases and an increase in the number of deaths from the illness. Iran has been the focus of the conversation when it comes to the spread of the virus for another reason. While the outbreak has been traced back to the holy Shia Muslim city of Qom, visited by Shia Muslims from all across the country and the region, the authorities have been accused of both under-reporting cases of the virus and mishandling the situation, dismissing calls to quarantine affected areas as old-fashioned. Perhaps nothing better illustrates the confusion of Iran's authorities than the fact that the two top officials in the country have tested positive for the virus days after trying to reassure the public that there was no cause for concern. I spoke with Ryan Costello, a policy director with the National Iranian American Council, to find out why the virus has taken hold so quickly in the country. It's likely the highest rate of infection because we don't have those those figures from the government that uh, accurately correspond. But I think everybody expects that this is the, the worst outbreak outside of China. The, the speculation is that uh, Iran has close ties with China. Uh, it did not cancel any flights uh, amid the outbreak of coronavirus. And so you had a really bungled Iranian response when reports first started emerging of uh, coronavirus spreading. Uh, the government actually said, you know, back on February 18th, there's nobody infected within the country. Uh, you know, these are false reports. And then the next day, it comes out that two people have died from coronavirus. So from the very beginning, it's been a little bit hard to tell what's fact and what's fiction. Now people are looking at, okay, well, there's, uh, you know, a few dozen people dead but, you know, they only say, the government only says that, you know, a little over 100 people are infected in the country. So, you know, there's, a, there's kind of been a lag between the number of deaths and the, uh, the rate of infection. And it doesn't seem like the announcements of the, the government are actually factual. Uh, if you take the rate of infection to the rate of deaths, it should be, you know, in the thousands based upon how many people have died. The authoritarian, untransparent nature of Iran's political regime, paired with the sanctions crippling its economy and supply chains, are playing a huge role in the regime's ability to contain the coronavirus outbreak, putting the country and the whole region at risk. Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, even accused the country's enemies of trying to use the disease to sabotage the country's general election. They've been under severe pressure from economic sanctions dating back to 2018, but it's continued to get worse and worse as the U.S. withdrew from the nuclear deal and imposed a lot of sanctions on the economy. They've kind of been weathering that storm. With the outbreak of the coronavirus, you've seen uh, neighboring countries uh, who have had uh, people come back from Iran with the virus. They've started to close borders. They've started to cancel flights to Iran. So it's uh, it's definitely going to have a major economic impact. I think the real has uh, dropped in value, the Iranian currency there. And essentially, they tried at first to kind of cover it up and, and you know, say, oh, it's not nothing to fear here. Continue about your normal day. That's probably the exact opposite thing that they should have been doing. There's a, a, a kind of a long line of corruption inside of Iran. There's a lot of concerns about, um, you know, the truth from the government. Iran has been hammered by sanctions. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard for them to get uh, medical devices uh, manufactured outside of the country. It's hard to get medicine uh, manufactured in the United States and in Western countries more generally. And so their uh, public health sector has been beleaguered in, in recent months and years uh, as a result of the sanctions, not being able to get equipment, not being able to get medicine. 
that they need, uh, price of medicine skyrocketing and so forth. Meanwhile, Lebanon has been experiencing months of political and economic upheaval, which have also put its healthcare system under severe strain, with reports of shortage in medical equipment amid reluctance by the government to suspend flights to Iran. There is a widespread fear and distrust in the country's ability to cope with the outbreak. We spoke to journalist Luna Safwan, who is on the ground. People worry that our hospitals are not originally in this economical situation equipped anymore to host many complicated situations or many complicated health challenges. So when you find out that your government is not officially halting travels from Lebanon to Iran, same thing for Italy, and knowing that we don't have a history of transparency with our government, with our cabinet, this ministry has yet proved this time that there is transparency. They are working by their own book They are not really listening to the worries of the people and they are acting very slowly. Health bodies such as the Center for Disease Control in the United States are now hoping that the novel virus like influenza and the common cold would turn out to be seasonal, with warming temperatures helping to stem its spread. In a conference call this week, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, restated this point, but warned that COVID-19 could reappear and ebb and flow. As winter will soon turn into spring, it seems many across the Middle East will have to rely on luck alone rather than their government's competence. Luck that is always in this region in short supply. After leading deeply polarizing campaigns, the frontrunners of Israel's third elections face off today, March 2nd. In one corner of the ring, there is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. In the other, former military chief Benny Gantz. Recent polls reported Netanyahu's Likud party is narrowly in the lead above Gantz's blue and white coalition. However, neither is likely to win the required 61 seats to form a majority in the Knesset. The stalemate could persist, and a fourth election may even take place. The past few months running up to the elections have also been contentious. U.S. President Donald Trump announced his Middle East peace plan. Peace requires compromise, but we will never ask Israel to compromise its security. Can't do that. This move blindsided the Palestinians, raising tensions across the region. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Netanyahu's corruption trial date was set for two weeks after the elections. Local media has reported disillusion among ballot-weary Israelis. But what about the Palestinians? The Joint List, a coalition of Israel's Arab parties, is projected to carry on as the Knesset's third biggest faction. But do they really represent Israel's Arab population? I asked Khaled al-Gindi, senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C., and author of Blindspot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Israel's population has almost 2 million Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. So it's quite a large community. They've always been underrepresented in national politics in Israel, and even with the joint list, they represent something like 10% of the members of the Knesset, when in fact, if they were represented proportional to the population, it would be double that representation. Concerning the Palestinian territories, Elgindi said, a win for Likud or Blue and White will not make much of a difference in the occupation. Whichever group comes out on top, it's probably not going to mean all that much to Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, because there isn't a lot of difference in terms of the substance between these two groups when it comes to the Palestinian issue. Both the Blue and White Coalition and Netanyahu have 
embraced the Trump plan. They have both said that they would support annexing the Jordan Valley and Israeli settlement blocks. The one big difference is in terms of annexation. I think if Netanyahu comes out on top, we're likely to see dramatic steps toward annexation happen in a fairly short span of time, whereas Gantz, he would want to move slowly. He would want to involve the international community. He would want to do things in coordination with Jordan. But At the end of the day, there will still be a deeply entrenched occupation. On February 12th, the United Nations published a list of more than 100 companies with ties to Israeli settlements, a major decision that elicited strong reactions across the board. The UN stated the firm's activities raised particular human rights concerns. Despite the UN's condemnation, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced thousands of new settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem days before the elections in an effort to boost Likud's chances. Omar Shaker, Israel and Palestine Director for Human Rights Watch, believes the list will facilitate accountability for those complicit in disregarding international law. I think this announcement should put businesses on notice that to do business with illegal settlements is to be complicit in the commission of a war crime. This database with the imperture of the United Nations should really be a, a strong signal to other corporations that remain active in settlements if they want to abide by their obligations under the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. They should stop doing business with settlements. There is an important level of transparency that this provides for consumers and investors that have standards around human rights, international law. But I think it's also quite an important message that's being sent to the Trump-Netanyahu agenda to normalize settlements. Shekhar says corporate responsibility is a significant factor in this issue. Companies are one of the main actors that can be implicated in contributing to or directly commissioning rights abuse. When you operate in a settlement, you're operating on land stolen from Palestinians. You are benefiting from resources, roads, infrastructure, permits that are denied to Palestinians. You're in many cases paying taxes and other benefits. And operating in the West Bank, even with the best intentions, the company is unavoidably implicated in entrenching that two-tiered discriminatory system that treats Palestinians separately and unequally. As Israeli politicians vie for power, Palestinians are left with little to no say in their future or their sovereignty. This was Dania Hejaji for the New Arab Voice. Age 91, Egypt's former president Hosni Mubarak died in a hospital in Cairo. The timing of his death is curious, earning the title of Egypt's new pharaoh after ruling with an iron fist for almost three decades. Mubarak was ousted around this time in 2011 in a wave of uprisings that spread from Egypt to Tunisia, known as the Arab Spring. This year's Arab Spring gave birth to revolutions in nations far flung from one another, but joined together in various slogans and chants, demanding the ouster of their leaders. Yemenis clenched their fists while demanding reform. Syrians danced while chanting for freedom and unity. And Egyptians used single words to speak volumes of their demands. When he came to power after the assassination of his predecessor, Anwar al-Sadat, in 1981, few people expected that he would become Egypt's longest reigning ruler since the 19th century. Mubarak was born in the village of Kafr al-Meselha, north of Cairo, in May 1928. 
By 1972, he was already appointed commander of the Egyptian Air Force, and it was in the following year that the Arab-Israeli war broke out and he rose to public prominence. For the third time since its birth as an independent state, Israel is embroiled in a war with the Arab nations that surround it. Mubarak was involved in planning Egypt's surprise attack on Israeli forces who had occupied the Sinai Peninsula in 1973. Although the war wasn't quite a victory for the Egyptian military, it restored the country's pride and self-confidence, and Mubarak emerged as a national hero, although some Egyptians later disputed his contribution to the cause. Mubarak became Anwar al-Sadat's vice president, playing a key foreign policy role in Egypt at a time when the country was preparing to make peace with Israel. But Sadat was assassinated by members of an Islamic jihadi militant group in 1981, and Mubarak inherited a system which gave him absolute power. I spoke with Sam Hamad, a Scottish-Egyptian writer, to learn more about Mubarak's rise to power and the legacy he leaves behind. His legacy is, can be summed up very simply. He was a, a brutal tyrant and a kleptocrat who looted the state of vital resources and set Egypt on a path of destruction. Between 1981 and 2005, there were no presidential elections in Egypt. Instead, there were presidential referendums every six years where Mubarak stood as the only candidate with voters being given a choice of saying yes or no. Mubarak won over 93% of the votes in every single one of these sham referendums, making a mockery of democracy. In the only presidential election where opposition candidates were allowed to stand, held in 2005, Mubarak supposedly received 88% of the vote. Ayman Noor, a liberal candidate who dared to run against him, was imprisoned a few weeks after the election. Throughout Mubarak's rule, the country was governed by emergency law, which suspended constitutional rights and allowed security forces to imprison opposition activists without charge or trial. Egypt, under Mubarak's rule, became a police state with security forces given free reign to arrest and torture whoever they wanted. He was known in Egypt as a war hero. In the 1973 war, he was a pilot. He actually didn't do anything, but he cultivated an image of himself as a war hero. He came to power in a state of emergency, which allowed him to build on what Sadat had started to expand it, you know, the kleptocratic authoritarian state. While Sadat had opened up Egypt's economy to domestic and foreign capitalism, in contrast to Nasser's uh, socialist regime. Mubarak took it several steps further. He basically uh, started a kind of mafia regime in which public resources were siphoned off by government officials, the military being the biggest recipient of those. As a result of this, the state began to crumble. Egypt actually had quite an advanced welfare state until Mubarak came to power. With dictatorship came corruption. After the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty, the U.S. provided Egypt with billions of dollars in aid every year, even though official statistics showed that Egypt was economically better off under Mubarak, millions lived in poverty while a minority enriched itself at their expense. After Mubarak fell from power, the total wealth amassed by his family was estimated at a, was estimated at a staggering $70 billion. After Mubarak fell from power the total wealth amassed by his family was estimated at a staggering $70 billion, with some sources even claiming Mubarak and his sons were worth $700 billion. As is the case with many things in Egypt, these people were so removed. I mean, there's a story, there's a story about uh, 
Suzanne Mubarak, his, his wife, who's of Welsh descent on, on one side, during the 2011 revolution, as these huge crowds were gathering in Harir, she was crying, screaming at the security men, saying, please don't let them get in here. Can they get in here? And they and them, of course, are the Egyptian people. But that's how far removed they were. They, they, they didn't know them. And the Egyptian people didn't know much about the life of Mubarak. Again, it was very much under the shadows for 30 years. All you knew was propaganda. The last time I was in Egypt, which was 10 years ago, I was driving through Mansoura and there's a big eye clinic there and a big billboard with Mubarak and this little girl. And the little girl was actually locally famous in Dakalia for she had an eye condition and the they cured it. But the, the billboard suggested that Mubarak had cured it. I mean, th that's how crude it was. Some people bought it. Many, many more just laughed at it. Right up until his last days, he was in some Egyptian resort that normal Egyptians will never uh, set foot in. At the expense of the Egyptian people, the guy who has possibly $700 billion stashed away in different foreign accounts was still his last very day stealing from the Egyptian people. Mubarak's democratically elected successor, Mohamed Mursi, was overthrown in 2013 after only one year in office by the bloated and corrupt army which had propped up Mubarak's rule. Mubarak was charged with involvement in the killing of protesters after the 2011 revolution, but was acquitted of all charges in 2017 by the new military regime. We are saying enough with the regime! This is the corrupt regime! We are saying enough with this regime! While Mubarak ceased to be president of Egypt nine years ago, the system he created survived the revolution, which overthrew him, and is still dictating the life of Egyptians everywhere. So Mubarak would allow people who weren't part of his inner circle to start businesses in an extremely controlled manner and could arbitrarily close down their businesses when he wanted to. Members of NGOs were present in Mubarak's Egypt. Conferences and stuff in Mubarak's Egypt that included the Muslim Brotherhood and socialist NGOs and stuff. So stamping all of that stuff out in the most brutal manner is, is Sisi's modus operandi. It was like those little bits of daylight that allowed for some form of accidental uh, civil society to emerge in Egypt that kind of bred the Egyptian revolution in January 25. Today, Field Marshal Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who replaced his uniform, fursuit and tie after his coup in 2013, is still using the same military state constructed under Mubarak's rule to maintain his power and suppress his opponents. People I knew who lived their entire lives hoping to see the downfall of Osni Mubarak, they're definitely not mourning him, but they're looking back on, on, on the period of his rule with a sense of nostalgia because they did have more freedoms. I'm not saying they had a, a great deal more freedoms, but they definitely had more freedom. The, the repression under Sisi is stifling. It's, and it's also the kleptocracy in Egypt, which is what Sisi maintains, it's become even worse. So things are getting worse. Social decay is getting worse. So people are looking back at the Mubarak period and they're thinking, do you know what? It wasn't actually that bad. While Mubarak has now passed away, the system he had nurtured lives on and is more vicious than ever. Lujan al-Hathul was jailed in Saudi Arabia for simply driving her car while being a woman. 
Samar Badawi faces 20 years in prison under Saudi Arabia's terrorism laws due to her human rights activism. Nasima Al-Sada, another human rights activist, was detained since July 2018 without charge or trial and as of February last year has been held in solitary confinement. These women are the victims of the kingdom's brutal crackdown on activists, journalists and anyone who speaks out against the regime. Now, Saudi Arabia has decided to add female artists to the hit list. Asayel Slay is a female hip-hop singer from the holy city of Mecca. In a recent viral video, she appeared in her headscarf, rapping about being a girl from Mecca, praising women from the city for their boldness and their flair. But the Saudi authorities did not agree. After her video racked up over 1.6 million views, authorities arrested the young woman and scrubbed the video from the internet. But the backlash against Asayel was not just from the authorities. Proving that the kingdom still has a long way to go for its social reform drive, Saudis Online deployed an Arabic hashtag that translates as hashtag you are not Mecca's girls. Claiming the daring women in the video do not represent Saudi women and making overtly racist slurs against Asayel, who is of African descent. According to Amnesty International, the Saudi Arabian authorities have since released Asayel, but said they would prosecute all those involved in making the video. The Saudi authorities have routinely used loosely defined terrorism or public decency laws to silence everyone who challenges the establishment's thinking. Asayel is only the latest victim of this intimidation. While her case also highlights the racism and misogyny that is still rampant throughout the region, Asayel is only the latest victim of this intimidation. These women, like many prisoners in Saudi Arabia, are often subjected to torture. At great personal risk to their safety, family members of these prisoners have been speaking out about the brutal treatment they have endured. Alia Al Hathul spoke to France 24 about receiving the harrowing news of her sister's treatment while she was detained. In the middle of the night, people come and take you from the cell, from your cell. They put you in the car, in the trunk of the car. It looks like they, they are doing something illegal. They were whispering, they are talking very slowly, and uh, they took her to a place, a very mysterious place. She doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know what is this place. She doesn't know to whom it, this place belongs. And in this mysterious place, she was there in a cell or in a room. Other people also, a few men and most of them women, several times per day, they take her to another place where they torture her. And when I say torture her, they are having fun. They are laughing at her. They attach her hands and legs and they electrocute her. Some of them, they say, hey, come on, more and more. Some of them, they said, over her head, try to electrocute her over her head. Sometimes they come in the middle of the night in her room, they wake her up, or sometimes she wake up and see there's a man sleeping next to her, trying to touch her body. She was sexually abused, and they were so much obsessed with sex most of the time they are all when they speak with her they are all their 
their only obsession. While these violations of basic human rights are nothing new in the kingdom, they sit in total contradiction to its recent, much-publicized drive to reform, modernize and emancipate women under the young but ruthless crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, a man implicated in the uptick in domestic crackdowns an extrajudicial assassination of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the brutal war in Yemen. On the one hand, Saudi Arabia has now lifted the ban on women driving, removed restrictions on women traveling without male permission, and has hosted a flurry of big-ticket entertainment and sports events to convince its people and the international community of its efforts. On the other hand, Saudi Arabia continues to incarcerate and torment citizens who have simply been calling for the same reforms the regime now takes credit for. To unpack this duplicity in Saudi Arabia's thinking, I spoke to Rothna Begum, who is an expert on women's rights in the Middle East and North Africa for Human Rights Watch. The case really highlights the hypocrisy of the Saudi authorities who are willing to invite rappers and female musicians from the outside world into Saudi Arabia but we'll take a hardline approach to a Saudi woman. It's highlighted that, that combination of both the sexism and racism that is still very pervasive. You know, when we talk about the women's rights reform in Saudi Arabia, it's been very divided in terms of what they are doing. They are, on the hand, one hand, providing some level of reforms, which have been quite important, but at the same time have still left behind in bars women's rights activists who champion those reforms. And you have a conservative society that is not particularly happy with some changes, but by and large have been co-opted in as, as part of a modernizing effort. That level of outrage doesn't seem to exist when Mariah Carey comes to town in Saudi Arabia. She says that Mohammed bin Salman's efforts to diversify the country's economy away from oil has resulted in a desperate attempt to improve its international reputation by enacting only certain superficial reforms. Mohammed bin Salman's policy has been to seem like they are modernizing the country. So the reforms that they are making has been very much on the surface. Things that are seen like women driving, um, women being able to travel abroad, while these are really big and important reforms, are visible reforms that they want the world to see. But they are not interested in providing for reforms, particularly uh, the, the freedom of expression and association, the right of a civil society space that does not exist. And they are not interested in having activism in the country, including women's rights activism, even while they provide for uh, reforms for women's rights. And that really needs to be cut, brought into question because we cannot expect that these reforms will continue without an actual civil society that is independent and free and able to report on this. My anaconda don't, my anaconda don't want none unless you got buns, hon. In July 2019, Saudis invited Nicki Minaj, an African-American female rapper whose lyrics contain profanities and adult content, to headline the new Jeddah World Fest Music Festival. Look at her butt. Nicki Minaj pulled out at the last minute under pressure from women's rights campaigners, leaving Saudis heartbroken. But Asayel, a homegrown female rapper with completely innocent lyrics, seems to be too much for the Saudi stomach. Her crime? Singing about being a woman in a country where many still hate women. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. 
This episode was researched by Dania Hajaji and Amr Salahi and produced by myself, Gaia Karamatsa. <laughs>